there are two types of people in this world. Those who read the instructions and those who say, those are for dummies and they're just going to slow me down, here I go. Which are you? I flip-flop, all right? There are, there are times, you know, what? It, it depends on what it is. Uh, sometimes I'm all about the instructions, not going to mess this up, get it right. I tried Ikea furniture. If you don't get it right, you've got to do the whole thing again. Sometimes I just dive in. I got an idea. I know what I'm doing. But what do you do when there's no directions? No instructions. Uh, you, you, you've got no choice, right? You're just going to have to solve this one on your own, and that's probably going to be some trial by error. That's the way that you and that's the way that I received our first Bibles. No instructions. Just a big book. Maybe the biggest book you'd ever received. Let me give you a little bit of a primer, okay? A little summary of uh, some of the important backgrounds surrounding uh, the information uh, to help you know what you've got in your hands or on your phone. The Bible is arranged around three covenants. There's a bunch more covenants in the Bible, um, but it's arranged around three. Three different audiences for the three different covenants. Three covenants arranged, a very, arranged around a very specific historical context. There is a storyline, there is a sequence, and as the story moves along, what used to be important becomes less important because something more important happened. So the first covenant was to an individual. Big promises by God, made by God, initiated by God to an individual. Then God made a covenant with a nation, initiated with a nation. Then God made a covenant with the world, with all of the nations. And another one, all three of them He initiated. Three different covenants, three different audiences. So Abraham was the individual, and then Israel was the nation, and then we, well, we are part of the all nations. But when we got it, we just thought it was a book, right? So start on page one and just keep right on going until you burn out. But somebody really should have told us this before we started reading on page one. No one told me about this until I went to Bible school. And frankly, that seems like a long time to wait and a long time to keep this significant truth kind of unmentioned. It was not hidden at all. Nobody hid it. But it was not made clear. But I think that this lack of essential information is what confuses people when they read the Bible. And then it causes uh, so many people to eventually walk away and they say, you know what, phooey on that. It makes no sense. And that's partially why so many people, as they get older, have left faith. Uh, they've, they've lost it. It, w- it was there, and, and now it's not. And, and some of them are in that process right now, kind of losing faith. So m- maybe this hits you on your personal timeline. Right now, maybe you're in, out, I don't know, back in, maybe, back out. I'm just not sure anymore. You know what, maybe it's not even worth the bother. And if that's not you, I'm really glad that you're here today. If that is you, then I'm even more glad that you are here today. Because we're going to continue telling the story that we began a couple of episodes ago 
Uh, but, but where we are going is some of the least taught storyline in all of Scripture. Or, or at least that's been my experience. Now, remembering that we are not talking about a book called the Bible, right? We're looking at an ancient historical document that eventually got bound together with some other ancient historical documents to make what we have since then gone back to label as the New Testament. 27 ancient historical manuscripts that were bound together with 39 other ancient, even more ancient historical documents that were eventually labeled the Old Testament. And then you take the old and you take the new and you bound them together to make this even larger collection of ancient historical manuscripts that have been compiled for convenience into what you saw as a book. But to us, as we received it, there were, it was a front cover, and there's a back cover, and there's a spine on the outside, so we think of it just like a book. It's a book, because this is the format a book takes, but it's not a really accurate description at all. Not accurate, and it frequently leads to misunderstandings, miscalculations. So we're going to continue to look at an ancient historical manuscript called Acts. Sometimes we call them books. This one's also called the Acts of the Apostles. It's written by a guy named Luke. He's a detail-minded doctor, and Luke chronicles for us what happened after the resurrection of Jesus for about the next 30 years. So that gives you your timeline on your ancient side. So when you have a bunch of people that get together, they meet together, eventually, you know what this is like, you're going to have to have a meeting, right? So Luke, t Luke tells us about this big meeting, a church council, right? It's so important because this council will define your relationship to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. This relationship has perhaps been uh, poorly defined, um, misdefined, uh, and, and maybe that is something that is making faith hard for you right now. So episode one, we discovered that when the church launched, the foundation of the early Christians was not a book. They, they didn't have one, and, 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 if, and, and most of them couldn't have read it even if they did have one. It wasn't the Bible because there wasn't one. It, it, it wasn't the Old Covenant or, or the Jewish Scriptures because they, they didn't tell the story about what Jesus just did. The foundation of the faith for the early church was an event. It was the resurrection of Jesus. So this event is what re-energized their faith, their, their living. It changed what they were doing. Uh, it gave them boldness, and they, they defined what they believed and then what they went out and taught and preached and lived. So those very first Christians, they were all about the resurrection. It was kind of in everything. They, they had experienced this event, and they were eyewitnesses, and it blew their minds. So last episode, we, we discovered that the early church was also very Jewish, understandably so, all of the very first Christians were Jewish. N not only that, they, they all stayed pretty much right around the city of Jerusalem. They didn't go very far. They had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but their consciences were tied into what they had been taught as children and how they had lived since birth. That makes sense. So consequently, they had the law of Moses, which they had been raised on, and that was God's covenant with Israel. It was the Mosaic covenant or the covenant made at Sinai. And, and, and now they had this new covenant that Jesus established. 
And it was very, very difficult for them not to mix and match covenants. A little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. Now eventually, and like 20 years worth of eventually, it took to break this habit. So here's where we left off, all right? In our storyline, the, the last episode, Saul of Tarsus becomes a believer. He becomes Paul, who later gets the title Apostle, the Apostle Paul. Paul's in the city of Antioch, and Antioch's about 480 kilometers north of Jerusalem, okay? And he's with a friend there named Barnabas, and they're working in this primarily Greek, Roman, Gentile city. They are on location, boots on the ground, telling people that God has done something in the world and for the world, and it all happened about 480 kilometers to the south from where they're standing. The, the, the Gentiles began embracing Jesus, and they decide to become followers, and Barnabas is there, and Paul's there, and they have this very simple message. God's done something in the world. He sent His Son to pay for your sins. Embrace Him as your Savior and follow Him. That's basically it. And Gentiles are saying, oh man, that's way better than this whole paganism thing that we've got going on, so we're in. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the mix and, max, ma mix and match Christians that are referred to in Acts as the circumcised believers, they hear what's going on up in Antioch and they go, oh no, 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 no. We are not going to have any of that. No, sir. Paul and Barnabas are up there telling people that they don't need to keep the law. They're saying Moses is out and Jesus is in. So the Jerusalem circumcision group, wouldn't you love to be part of that team, uh, sends their own missionaries to the city up in Antioch to come in behind Paul and Barnabas and correct their terrible theology. So they make up brochures and postcards and buttons, and they begin handing them out in the city streets kind of thing to these brand new Gentile Christians. They go right for them. And the message in bold letters is, keeping the law of Moses is a condition for salvation and inclusion. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, and you're going to be saved from your sin, it's a great story, right? If you're going to get the full benefit of Jesus' death on the cross... And if you want to be included in the church, you are going to have to keep the law of Moses. That's the drama that we're about to wade into. Fun, right? So you can go to Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bible user, we're going to be in there a bunch. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. First thing I got to tell you, when I say in directions up and down, up is north and down is south. I'm broken that way. I know people use their directions differently. They just mean directions. But when you're talking about Jerusalem as part of the directions that you're getting, you are always going up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place that you go to. It is the center. Um, it's really important religiously, and in this world it was uh, very, very significant. It's also on a hill. So there were songs of ascent. You ascend to Jerusalem. So whenever you speak of Jerusalem, it is always up, and everywhere else in the world is always down. So when you hear these things, it does make a difference. If you're like me in the up and downs up north, well, they're saying down north. I have to make sure you know that because it drives me crazy. 
Uh, they, they begin teaching the Gentiles there who have already put their faith in Jesus, and, and w- what they are teaching is different, and everyone knows it's different from what Paul and Barnabas have taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So Christianity just took off for all the women. <laughs> but, but the men, well, the men needed some more convincing, right? For, for, for the Jewish people, circumcision for men was the mark of the covenant. That's how you knew you were in the covenant. But which covenant? So these guys come uh, along behind Paul and Barnabas, and they say, these, these, these guys didn't tell you the whole story, all right? But don't worry, we will. First, fellas, you're going to need some surgery, all right? It's kind of salvation by surgery. And if you are really going to follow Jesus, you've got to get yourself in on the law of Moses. To follow Jesus, you need to follow Moses. That begins with circumcision, and that begins with some serious complications. They are blending Moses and Jesus. And these Jewish guys are thinking, well, just because we're going to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that we should just throw away our entire Scripture, should we? Verse 2. Luke's understatement. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I love the way you can summarize so much in just like one little sentence there. So the Gentile believers are going, come on, you guys have got to get your act together, right? Paul told us it was just a simple act of faith in Jesus. We know that you Jews don't like us, right? We already know that, right? You won't let us into your synagogue. Uh, I, I don't even really know what you guys believe because we, we can't be around you. I don't know what your stories are. I, I, I don't know what you believe about God. We, we, we just heard, we think that God has done something miraculous in the world, and he demonstrated that it was really him by raising this man from the dead. And we're good to go, right? But what's with all of this? You've got to become Jewish before you can really become a Christian. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Why did they have to take a 480-kilometer trip to Jerusalem to sort this out? Why would they need to meet with this group? Well, there's no Bible. There's no New Testament documents yet. There are no Gospels. There's no letters from Paul. This is all new. There's no reference material. This is 20 years after the resurrection, and the church is just growing like crazy. But now there's this problem. There's these men, and and they're the ones who are going to have to sort this whole thing out. And by the time we get to this point in history, the number one person in the church, the, the Christian church in Jerusalem, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, is none other than James. James, the brother of Jesus, okay? He's the big cheese in the church in Jerusalem. And James was not convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be until after the resurrection, right? And that changed everything for him. Something actually happened. And that was right here. 
So we have this group coming from Antioch, and, and a group that's already in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem guys are all, hey, these people have to keep the law of Moses. And the group from Antioch says, uh, I don't think that's how it works. So big meeting on the horizon, in bold letters, top of the paper, here's the agenda, a Gentile's relationship to the law of Moses. So just to make this a little bit more clear and to, uh, to pull it out of antiquity and put it into your world, you are Gentiles. This is about your relationship to the first section of your Bible, your relationship to the law of Moses, your relationship to what we call the Old Testament. What should that be? The, the whole thing, it's all God's Word, inspired, given to us as a gift. Do you Gentiles have to live and believe like Jews to be Christians? So they all arrive at the convention center in Jerusalem. They all put on their name badges. Hello, my name is Barnabas. Uh, th this is how it went. They got set up. They see what their lectures are going to be, and they get in. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. Say what? Did you just see that? Did you read that? It said Pharisees, right? How did they get in? right? I thought they were always the enemies of Jesus. Now there's Pharisees in the group of Christ followers. What is going on? What do you think changed their mind? Do you, do you think it was because they heard the Sermon on the Mount? Did they, did they get a retelling of the prodigal son story? What about the parable of the Good Samaritan? Nope. They saw him. They saw him after he had been crucified, dead, and buried. They saw him resurrected. The resurrection changed the path of history on the global scale, but on so many individual lives as well. And 20 years after the resurrection, there are now Pharisees who are now leaders in the church. Why? Because they have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. Not 100 years later, but less than 20 years later. But these guys are still Pharisees, right? They grew up and they trained and they excel at keeping the laws. They're Olympic-level law keepers. So these Pharisees get up to the microphone and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the debate is on. Verse 7, again, great summary. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, do you remember last episode? It's going back a little bit. Peter had just had his very own special come-to-Jesus moment in dealing with Gentiles. Fifteen years after the resurrection, Peter still wouldn't go into a Gentile's home. Why? Because he's a jerk? No, because when you're Jewish, you just don't do that. A little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus. But now Peter's been woken up to the fact that God has done something new in the world, and it is for everybody. And Peter's kind of a big deal, right? People respect Peter. They know Peter. And so he gets up, and here's what he says. Brothers, you know 
that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Eight, God, who knows the heart, stop right there for a second, okay? Just let that sink in. Step out of the big story for just a second. Do you ever feel like you don't measure up? Do you have a a bad church experience in your past? Have you been told? Have you been convinced that you are not good enough and that you will never be up to that level? This part, it comes from Peter, all right? God, this is Peter, God who forgave me for denying him three times right after I told everyone that I would never walk away from him. God who is able to look beyond all of their offensive habits, their infantile ways, their bad choices. God who knows the heart. God who is looking beyond behavior. God who is looking beyond their background. God who is looking beyond their baggage. God who is looking beyond their ignorance of the Scriptures. God who knows the heart showed that He accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. It is impossible for us as 21st century Gentile Christians to comprehend the seismic shift with those last six words, just as He did for us. Their law and prophets, your old Testament was specific. God loves the Jews more than anybody else. Anybody else in the world. An enemy of the Jews was an enemy of God. That's just how the world was. But this is a new worldview. This is the new world order. This is like getting the message. We have updated our terms of service to continue Please acknowledge here. It's completely detached and removed from everything that came before. It took Peter, the Apostle Peter, 15 years to realize that God has actually thrown open the door to outsiders. God has done something through the Jews for the world, but the through the Jews part of the story is now over. And now something new and better and something inclusive has come. Once it was only available to the Jews, but now it's available to everyone. And here's the kicker. Apart from the law, apart from what Moses taught, apart from the covenant that God made with the nation Israel, Peter's speech ends, and he asks them a question. Verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Fellas, let's just, let's just be honest for a second, okay? Let's, it's just us talking here. It is tough to be a law-abiding Jew, isn't it? I mean, we've done it our whole lives, and we're not all that good at it. Why in the world 
would we try to get a group of people that did not grow up in our culture, that don't know our stories, that don't know our scripture, how are we going to ever be able to get them to accept all of these laws, 613 laws and rituals and customs and festivals, to do all of that before they can come to Jesus? How realistic is that? Now, what comes next is so subtle, but so important for where we're going. He says to this group of Jewish Jesus-following people, verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The implication is that we, Jesus-following Jews, must move in their direction and stop expecting them to move in our direction. For pity's sake, Peter was in the home of a Roman centurion. He saw God do for them exactly what he did for us. I mean, 20 years ago this happened. They didn't have the law. They didn't know the law. They certainly didn't follow the law. They never did anything to become Jewish. And yet, Peter's saying this, yet I saw God accept them just as he did for us. It is time for us Jews to accept the fact that God has done for them what he was going to do with us. And now he's doing something for the entire world. And we got to get in on this. we got to be part of this. We need to be part of what God is doing right now. Even though it means letting go of and setting aside the traditions, the Scriptures that we grew up with. It took him 20 years, but Peter finally figured out that Christianity was not Judaism 2.0. That it was not an add-on. Jesus was not an and. Jesus was instead of. No more mixing and matching. So Peter's done. And now James stands up. He reminds them, we shouldn't be surprised by this, guys. I mean, our prophets predicted this. We all know the Scriptures, right? The prophets predicted this many times. They told us that there was a time coming when there would be a new covenant. We should long for this new covenant. We should anticipate this new covenant. We should watch for it. Israel was established to be a light to the Gentiles. We should have seen this coming. Then, then he drops this huge statement. I've heard all of you, this whole discussion. I know what's going on. And now in summary, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That arrangement that God had with Israel should not be a requirement to a relationship with Him. Not difficult. It should not be difficult for those who are turning to God. The apostles remembered what many modern Christians tend to forget that what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. That covenant is now old because there's a new one. And what he says next is so astonishing. It might even make you want to read your own Bible. So disruptive that it has been largely ignored in the church. You probably have no idea what he's about to say. This is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the head office, okay? This is James, the brother of Jesus. These guys were right there with Jesus. We need to take their word 
for what we need to do with their Scripture. Because they understand this way more than we do. This required way more change for them than for us. What comes next defines your relationship to over half of your English Bible. Remember, the presenting issue. Remember how this started, that brought this council together. Why are they here? Why are they gathering? Because just about 480 kilometers north in Antioch, they have hundreds and hundreds of new believers who are all waiting to hear what this group has to say. And so James says, we need to write them a letter and provide a reference to work through uh, something that they can sort this out and, and, and tell them what we have decided. We don't want any more of this double message stuff happening. We should have one message, not two. Verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, uh, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. This will help them. They'll have a reference. This is what we'll tell them. And it looks like he's totally just cherry-picking a bunch of laws, right? So no, no longer do they have to worry about the 613 laws, but let's just give them a couple of laws just to keep it real, right? So you can't eat idle meat. No, no, no more meat from strangled animals. No sexual immorality because, of course, that's all we we're always talking about is sex. But these are not random, okay? There's an explanation. Verse 21, it goes on. For the, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. There are a bunch of Jews up in Antioch, and these dietary laws, man, they are hardwired into them. So, so why would James choose to send that particular message to the new believers? What does the law of Moses being taught in synagogues every Sabbath have to do with anything? And why these laws? Why the food thing and not, not there's already a list that's made, right? Why would you make a new list? Just pull out the good old classic Ten Commandments. Throw those in. This is kind of a big deal. Those imperatives have nothing to do with keeping the law of Moses. Those imperatives that James is saying that we should write have everything to do with keeping the peace in the church. He was asking these new Gentile believers to make some dietary concessions for the sake of the unity of the church. He knew that no matter what they were going to teach to a Jewish person, that the dietary law, it's, it's just going to blow their minds. It's, it's, it's what they've always known. It's just too hard to let go of all at once. So he's, tell the Gentiles, you make concessions all right? Because we're down here and we're making concessions because our goal is one church, not a fighting, squabbling, nitpicking, separating over preferences, divided church. This is the goal of Jesus. Remember, do you remember when he prayed this? He prayed this in John chapter 17, verse 20. Not only for those, not for those only do I pray but for those also who will believe in me through their word, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world 
may believe that you sent me. 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. 23. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Becoming one, staying one, growing into one, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, having love cover over a multitude of sins. And that's what we're doing. That's our verse. We are still living out the prayer request of Jesus, and into one-ing is not easy. And it's not consequence-free. Some people just cannot abide with these guidelines. They feel that they have to have everybody follow their ways, or they're just going to have to keep leaving. They can't mix with those people. And that's why there needed to be the first Jerusalem council. And those same issues continue to exist today. So the dietary laws are there to keep the peace. But then he also said, abstain from sexual immorality, right? Now, if we had an online survey, and you could pull out your phone right now and, and fill this out, and you could participate, you could, you could write in your definition, what you think of sexual immorality. What does it mean? How many different answers do you think we would get? Right? A wide selection, right? Probably more answers than there were people sending them in. So you are going to send a letter to a bunch of former idol-worshiping ex-pagans who pr practice the temple prostitution as a form of worship, as a form of devotion, and they have a very different system of morality. What, what you can do, what you can't do with slaves, this is part of what they have lived with. And in, in the pagan religions, the God couldn't care less how you treat other people. Religious morality is not a thing in pagan religions. As long as the gods get their sacrifices, you know, that's really all you can do. That's the best you can manage there. There was a civil law, sure, in terms of what you could and couldn't do. So James, what, what, what are you trying to get across? What does it even mean? This is a general call to avoid immoral behavior, but not immoral behavior as defined by the Old Covenant or defined by the law and the prophets. These people weren't Jewish, right? They wouldn't even know the laws, but as defined by Barnabas and the Apostle Paul who had been teaching in Antioch for two or more years. Do you know what the Apostle Paul consistently tied sexual behavior to, it appears in his letters multiple times. It's not the law and the prophets, not the old covenant, not the Ten Commandments. The one commandment that Jesus gave, you are to treat others as God through Christ has treated you. So when Paul taught stuff about relationships, he said stuff like this. Maybe you've heard this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Okay? Any questions? You know, it's kind of overarching. You, you, you can't get away from that, right? It does not leave a lot of wiggle room. There's not a lot. What about in this situation? Put other people before yourself. In your relationship with one another, just remember that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. 
and so is hers. And so is his. The Apostle Paul was explicit and specific about teaching on sexual immorality, but he did not tie it to the law and the prophets. It was not tied to the covenant between God and the nation of Israel made at Sinai. So this letter makes perfect sense because it is going to show up in the church in Antioch where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have already been for two years. And in order for there to be unity in that church, let's not offend the Jewish sensibilities as it comes to the dietary laws, okay? They'll probably move past it over time, but let's not force it. Let's not rush it. And, and you need to take Paul's teaching on moral, moral purity seriously because that has the potential to divide you as well. There are different religious customs out there when it comes to sexual purity. So, Look to the example, to the teaching and the commandment of Jesus. So this first church council made it clear that the old covenant, the law of Moses, the Sinai covenant was not the go-to source regarding sexual behavior for the church. More importantly, maybe even more disturbingly, the Law and the Prophets, the Old Covenant, and as we call it, the Old Testament, was not the go-to source regarding any behavior for the church. So the council was making it clear to the new Gentile Christians in Antioch, and thereby for new Christians ever since, that they are not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. Not accountable to the Jewish law. Not accountable to the Mosaic covenant. That's not your covenant. We have our own covenant. The new covenant. And it's far less complicated. But it is far more demanding. When you begin to see every single person that you meet regardless of race, color, creed, religion, gender, hairstyle, vulnerable or not vulnerable, when you begin to see every single person, whether you're face-to-face -face or not, as being made in the image of God and a potential dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God, you will treat them well. You will not need a specific chapter and verse to decide if they should be treated with kindness, compassion, grace, or respect. This is a huge day in the history of the church. Absolutely massive. But for some reason, it's typically a very quiet day in the teaching from the church. So much change, so much new understanding was released that day. It was confirmed through Peter's experience with Cornelius as well. The old way of doing things has passed away, and now the new way, the new covenant way, was sweeping in. And this was not just about how a person could become a Christian. This was a reset of the whole worldview. So the, so the old covenant view that God loves Jews better than anyone else, that, that you, were, you were supposed to build walls and hide behind them, to build walls to keep all of them out? No. 
The new covenant says to go to other nations, to all nations, and share this message, to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Everything is different and everything is new. The entire worldview and all of the imperatives are new. And finally, 20 years after the resurrection, Peter, James, John, Barnabas, they're living these things out. They recognized that their own prophets had predicted this, promised this, told you to look forward to this day. Jesus had said that he had fulfilled the Old Covenant. The Jewish Scriptures are the essential backstory, the history that leads to the main story. (coughs) They help us to understand the need for Jesus because God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to live, heal, teach, love, forgive, he bled and died to buy my pardon. But he didn't stay dead. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. The biggest news, the most significant event in history is the resurrection of Jesus. He changed everything. The Old Testament is God-inspired. It is essential God on the move throughout time. God revealing Himself in relationship to people and with people. It is the fabulous story of God the founder playing by the rules of the kingdoms of this world to establish a kingdom that was not of this world. God sending a king that would be like no other king in history. A king who would lay down his life for his subjects. A king who would introduce the entire world to God the Father. A new understanding. A new insight. New implications and new imperatives. When we say lost people matter to God, that should always in our minds include Christians. We lose our way regularly. We come back to the statement of James, the brother of Jesus. Acts chapter 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the church began fueled by the the message of the resurrection, fueled by eyewitnesses of this world-changing event. It was marked by unprecedented diversity with a code of conduct that elevated the status of people who had no status. And it reduced everyone to the status of sinner in need of a Savior. People who could recognize in themselves and in the lives of others, the essentialness of grace, saving grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Kind Father, thank you. Thank you for putting in motion so much than, oh, Lord Jesus, having the patience 
patience to wait with us, for us. Patient grace to allow us to take time to figure it out, to allow you to keep speaking into our lives. And as we run in earnest pursuit of you, Lord Jesus, may you continue to help us gain understanding, grow in our compassion, grow in our love for those who are around us. You saw our need. And you came because on our own, with a law, we couldn't fix it. Thank you for a new covenant of grace and hope. Inspired, empowered, brought to life by your Son. Help us to live in light of the fact that you love us and you loved us before we did anything right. Before we lived in the proper way, we followed the right rules. You loved us before that. Offered us the gift of salvation and then said, now listen to my spirit as we go forward. Love drives what we do. We have an example from you. That's the example that we want to follow, Lord Jesus. So please continue to be patient with us. We mess stuff up. We forget. We drop the ball. We miss the mark. But we want to keep coming back. Coming back to you. And to welcome others around us in that same journey as well. Help us to see you as we try to figure out how to live in this world day after day with all the people that we get to be with, all of them made in the image of God, all of them potential places, potential temples for the Holy Spirit of God. Take us forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.